Father, you are enthroned in your glory. Even as we sit here this morning, Father, you are on your throne. You're leading us through your spirit. We hear you. We endeavor to obey. We desire to please you. And yet your ways, Father, being higher than our ways, your purposes, Father, being eternal. Even when we stumble, even when we fall short, nothing is as it should not be. Everything, Father, is as you expect it to be. And we are gloried. We we glory in that, Father. We are encouraged by the fact that no matter what our strengths are, how much we may be diligent or how much, Father, we may apply ourselves, nevertheless, all your purposes from the beginning of the foundations of the earth will be served according to your will. And yet, Father, in the mystery that is our relationship with you, you endeavor to work through us and you call us to be your servants. You ask us to be diligent. You ask us to be committed. You ask us to learn your ways and to apply what we learn. So that we don't know how it is that both our participation and your sovereign will work together in all cases. We take your word for what it says and we do as we are told and we Ask, Father, by the Spirit to have the strength to do those things, to put aside our personal interests, selfish desires, the temptations of our world, and in their place, Father, to accept your holy and perfect will for our lives. And in this scripture this morning, Father, you have a story that explains in so wonderful a way how it is that you can work through the lives of individuals to teach a much bigger story about yourself. And we pray that you would use us that way too. We thank you for the time and the word this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, I endeavored to finish this story this morning, but as it turns out, there is so much in this remarkable chapter, I felt that I would do disservice to rush through it. And so we'll spend this week and next finishing it. The story of how Isaac finds his beautiful wife, Rebecca. The story of that encounter is marvelous all in its own. You have this challenge of a man trying to find a bride for his son, taking her from a faraway land, not willing to travel there himself, not able to, and not even willing to let his own son go, having to work through a servant. And then all the wonder of how God directs this servant to exactly the right woman under the most improbable of circumstances. I mean, it's a wonderful story all by itself. Can you imagine in later years... Rebecca, for example, sitting around in her home, in her tent, retelling this story to some neighbor lady or to her own kids, perhaps. Wouldn't everyone just marvel at this story? The way mom and dad got together. This is this is a really cool story just by itself. But what makes this account so remarkable is the story beneath the story. And I think it's fair to say this is one of the most remarkable chapters in all the Bible. It's one of my favorite. I actually have been looking forward to being in this chapter for some time. There's a few others like it, of course, in the story of Genesis, to be sure. But this one is special. It really is. It's a picture, a second story that God creates out of the lives of these people, out of the lives of Abraham, out of the lives of Isaac and and Rebecca and the servant, so that each of these people In their everyday experience as a part of this story, they stand for another character. They come to represent a greater story, a much larger story, one that is far more important to the overall story of Scripture than merely how Isaac and Rebecca came to know one another. And just like the first story that we've been learning, the one of how these two came together, this second story, as I call it, is equally true. 
It's not fable. It's not myth. No more so than the first story is. We learned last week that Isaac in Scripture is a picture, a representation of Jesus Christ. And in this particular story, we see Isaac, the son, away from the scene in a faraway world, living with his father, not present during the moment when his bride is selected. He's waiting for his bride to be found. He's waiting for the bride to be pulled out of the world in which she lives and made ready for him at a time when they will meet in the future. And then Abraham, for his part, he's the father. He's the father of Isaac, obviously. But in the story, he's also a picture of our father in heaven, the one who has the responsibility to find the appointed bride to be wedded to his son. That's the same role our father in heaven plays for us. The bride in this case in the story is obviously Rebecca. She pictures the Gentile church, and that is you and I, taken from the world, selected to wed the son, even before we have the chance to meet him face to face. That's why scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. And then there was the servant and probably the most intriguing character in the whole story and certainly the dominant character from the beginning to the end of the story. Here's Abraham's servant, the one who makes the proposal who betrothes the woman to the son even while he's away, the one who finds her when she wasn't even looking for a husband, the servant of the father becomes a picture of the final member of the Godhead that is the Spirit of God. He goes out into the world, we're told in Scripture, searching the hearts to find those who are appointed to receive the proposal and accept it. And when he finds one who will accept, he returns with gifts, that binds that person into a relationship with that husband-to-be. So here again, we pick up now in the story with that marvelous second story developing, but there's so much more left in this story and so much more left in our second story. So let's go right to it. We're at verse 28 in chapter 24. And as we move forward, let's continue to look for more connections between the events of this moment and our larger story of salvation pictured through these players. Verse 28, then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on her sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house and then Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and he watered and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Well, we'll stop there for a moment. Immediately, as we saw from last week, as Rebecca receives these very expensive gifts, indicating her relationship now with this future husband. She runs back. She runs back to the home to show mom what's happened. I think this is the standard response, by the way, for any woman who gets engaged. The very natural thing to do immediately is call mom or maybe dad or whomever, but someone in the family got to get the news. In this case, it's run back to the house. And she runs. The scripture in Hebrew indicates she moves very quickly. She's anxious to get back. When she enters the house, it's not her parents' who take the most interest in the situation. It's her brother, Laban. Now, her dad is still alive. We'll see him later in the story. 
But it's likely that Laban is the oldest son in the family. Perhaps Bethuel is now very advanced in age, or he has simply allowed his son to take a leading role in the household, which would have been typical, would have been tradition for an eldest son. In any case, you see him taking a paternal role with his sibling, with Rebekah. But notice his first interest. According to the text, his first interest is with the bracelets and the ring. He's no fool. Number one, he understands what they mean. He understands that there is a betrothal at work here, and he's certainly going to take an active interest in what that means. But you don't have to read between the lines very much to understand he's taken with the wealth. He's noticing what she has. These trinkets on her wrist and on her nose, as we find out later, the ring is actually in her nose. They're quite valuable. Quite valuable. Imagine if your daughter or if your sister came home under similar circumstances wearing Tiffany diamond-studded jewelry. I don't care how objective you try to be in a moment like that. You're going to be interested in meeting whoever it is that can afford that much bling. This is going to catch your attention. And for the right reason, this person has wealth and wealth is not immaterial. It's not insignificant. That's the point, by the way, of Abraham's gift, that the whole reason he sent his servant with ten camels was to make this kind of an impression, to make sure that the bride's family understood that this woman would be going into the care of a family who could care for her very well. In passing, I think it's worth to note here the place that wealth has in a spiritual life. And we could talk all week or all year on this. I don't intend to. But looking just at this moment as our example for the time, We all have some measure of wealth and all that we have, whatever that is, comes from the Lord. And to a certain extent, you could say all of us are wealthy because there is always someone in the world who has less than us. Wealth truly is relative. And if there's always someone who has less than us, then there's always someone in the world who could look to us as wealthy, at least to some degree. And therefore, there's always the possibility that we could take our wealth and use it to impress somebody else in one way or another, to make an impression, in other words, with our wealth. Like Abraham, some believers are blessed financially beyond the average, and with that wealth comes great responsibility. And like Abraham, our wealth should be understood as a tool. It's something God has given us. It has the ability to work for us in ministry or to work against us, for that matter, in ministry. It is an opportunity as a tool, and the tool and the opportunity that it provides is to influence the world for the sake of God's glory and the gospel. That's its best use if you have the opportunity to put your wealth to work, whatever level of wealth you have. But however we use our resources, they should be spirit-led, and I think that's what you see happening here in this story. God has blessed Abraham with tremendous wealth. For what purpose? Well, obviously it makes Abraham's life that much easier, and so be it. God has chosen to bless him. But that's not its end purpose. That's not the end of it all. With Abraham, the point of his wealth was to give him the capacity to serve God and honor God in a way that if he had not had that independent wealth, he could not have done. Here you see Abraham using God-given wealth to impress a family so that his son will have the bride God intended for him to have. I mean, is it reasonable to assume that God gave Abraham the resources that he has in order to ensure he obtained the right woman? It doesn't seem a stretch, does it? Now, if Abraham had hoarded that wealth for his own sake and not put it to work in these kinds of moments, then we could say that he was misusing what God gave him. Similarly, when he needed a cave for his dead wife, 
in a land where he owned nothing and men were willing to take advantage of his need. Nevertheless, he put huge sums of money behind his intent and his desire so that he could honor his wife and glorify God by the way he provided for his own sake without depending on any other man in the, in the land. These are ways in which Abraham was blessed and used the blessing so that God's name was glorified. There's nothing wrong with that. We can find people in our world who have wealth and don't put it to work to God's glory, and that is to their shame. We can find people who have very little wealth and do exactly the same thing, put very little of it to work for God's glory. See, it doesn't really matter how much you have. It's about what your heart wants to do with what God has given you. We all have that challenge. We all have good days and bad days. Abraham is a good model. A man who had a lot of wealth given to him by God as a blessing, who then turned it to God's glory as God gave him opportunity. So here we have Rebecca now at home with Laban talking about the deal. Laban understands that there is a marriage afoot. He now has to play the role of a patriarchal or leading member of the household to negotiate the terms of this deal. His sister is engaged to a wealthy man. He has to assume a certain kind of payment will come because of that. But first, he wants to learn a little bit about who this man is and what his real intentions are, how this arrangement came about. Remember, Laban wasn't at the well. Laban doesn't understand how they came to this moment. And so as they come upon this man at the well, he does the gracious thing and invites him back to the home. When he gets there, he pulls out the red carpet. I have a lot of respect for Laban, at least to this point in the story, because he understands he has an opportunity here. He wants to make the most of it himself. You notice he does things like, feed the camels, take care of the animals as they come into the, into the barn or into the stable. He washes the feet of the servant, uh, a very common practice in the day to show hospitality. You only have to take, uh, put sandals on your feet and walk through a deserty, dusty place for the better part of a, of a couple of weeks in order to appreciate how much you would have liked to have somebody wash your feet after a while, how important that would be, and why that's such a great sign of hospitality. Did you also notice he's not traveling alone? For the very first time, we saw that detail in the text. There were others with him, we're told. So whatever was sent with the camels and with the servant, there included other servants along with him. This reception isn't altogether unusual for this day or even for our day. Wouldn't we do the same thing for someone who's engaged, potentially engaged to a member of our household? We would want to bring them in and treat them well. And so the first thing Laban does is he's going to seat them down for a celebratory meal, a chance to cement the relationship a little bit. I want you to notice what the servant does, though. As we move forward in the text, the servant, for his part, he wants to stay focused on the business of the visit, the business here of the marriage. Look what he does in verse 33. He launches into a retelling of the story. But when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And Laban said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now, Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked 
will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son, from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring. And may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she will say to me, you drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, Behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I will water your camels also. So I drank and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Well, I wanted to read the whole retelling because obviously we're familiar with this story, having seen it happen earlier in the chapter. But I also wanted you to get a sense of how thoroughly the servant retold each and every step of the events. He left no detail out of the story. In Scripture, a retelling of events in this fashion is always intended to emphasize the accuracy of the details and to highlight God's work. It gives us a second opportunity to reflect on how God caused these events to take place and in what they mean. In the case of the servant, his intent was to impress upon Laban that this wasn't an ordinary meeting and this wasn't an ordinary proposal and this isn't going to be an ordinary marriage. So that Laban is fully appreciative of the circumstances before he makes any decision about whether to let this marriage go forward or not. He's telling Laban this is a God-sent, God-arranged marriage and Rebecca is God's answer to my prayer for Isaac's sake. So he wants Laban to have a full appreciation of what's happening. Notice in verse 49, when he does the retelling, the servant says at the very end, tell me what you intend to do now with what I've given you with this knowledge so that I know what I am to do in response. In this retelling, there is an incredible connection between the first story and that second story, the story of the Holy Spirit and the story of the bride of Christ and how God brings us into the family of God. Look back at verse 36. The servant says the father, Abraham, has given everything to his son, Isaac. Now, that's a clear picture of how the father in heaven has said he has given all things to his son. A couple of verses come to mind. John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Paul elaborates further in Ephesians, Ephesians 1.18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the spirit of his might, which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church. There's dozens of other references I could give you out of the New Testament, but they all come back to that same point that the father in heaven has given to the son all authority, all glory, all power, both now and in the kingdom to come. And in like way, Abraham says to this audience, my father has given everything he has to this one son, not to Ishmael, not to any other one of the family, not to his servant, even as he used to have to do when the servant was his only heir, but rather he's given all things to this one son. But it goes deeper. The connection goes much deeper. The servant's testimony here concerning the events at the well offer a beautiful picture of our first response to the gospel after we come to faith. When we come to faith, we give our confession or should. We give a testimony and hopefully not just once, but on a continuing basis. We tell the world how we met Christ. We confess in a statement of faith how we came into this relationship, do we not? Or maybe I should say, should we not? In this story, the testimony that's given is actually delivered by the servant, right? By the man who came from Abraham, not by Rebecca, who's the one picturing the church. But you know what? That's how it works for us, too. That's actually how it works for us. I mean, we use the words. Our mouth is the thing moving. Our voice is the one heard. But it's not us speaking. According to Scripture, when we testify to our encounter with Christ and give a confession of the kind you see represented here in this story, we aren't speaking alone. We don't do that in our own power, even if we think we do. We speak with words and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus told the disciples, you may remember when he was telling them concerning their own testimonies in Matthew, Matthew 10, 19, he says to the disciples, to the apostles, when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And he's talking to them about a very specific coming experience in the way they would be persecuted. But the principle that's underneath it all is the same. The spirit in you is no different than the one that was in them. The words they received were unique to the circumstances they would be in, but so are ours. Our own testimonies are unique. Our experiences in the way we came to faith are unique. But they're common in the sense that the actors are the same. The Spirit of God, the Son of God, the Father in heaven. So here you have the bride receiving an invitation, and in our case, the gospel. And through the servant's testimony, the bride's family, the world from where she comes, They get their first exposure to this new relationship, their first experience learning about this new relationship. And the servant, the spirit of God represented here, gives the testimony of how the relationship was established. Folks, in many ways, those who know us best, our family members, our friends, those who are closest to us, particularly those who knew us before we were believers, they are our first mission field. And often the best. And I realize No one's a prophet in their own hometown. I have that same challenge in my own family. But it doesn't mean they aren't the mission field, right? It doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity. It doesn't mean God won't give fruit down the road based on our persistence. And we do it by testifying, as the Spirit represents here through this servant, 
testifying to what God has done in our lives, how we met him, how he caught us when we weren't looking for him. It's the same story, different details. And as that entire encounter is being retold here and in our own experiences, we give our own testimony. You see an opportunity to glorify God and to perhaps lead someone else into that same moment to put them at a well, so to speak, asking the same question you were asked. There is a model here, by the way, of how our confession or testimony should take place. And there's three parts, as it's shown here in this example. The first is tell the story boldly. Tell it with courage. The servant here sat down with this family whom he had not met until this moment. When the custom would have expected that he would be quiet and gracious and receive the food and accept the hospitality and let things ride. But he knows that he's got business afoot, the Lord's business. And he looks at the moment and says, I am not going to play along. I'm going to be bold, tactful, I hope, but bold. And he interrupts the meal to insist that he tell the story of how they met. Likewise, I don't think we should let everyday events of life, the normal course of everyday life, overshadow the importance of a testimony opportunity. Our testimony is not merely a part of our life. It's the purpose of our life. The whole reason we were saved and not taken directly to heaven, but left here for a time was so that in that interim, we can be a light. We can be a witness. We can be that one who would testify, retell the story. It's not inappropriate to set an arbitrary goal for yourself of, Once a week, let's say, once a week, I'm going to tell my confession. Somebody is going to hear my confession every week. And not the same person every week, okay? Your wife or husband is going to get tired of it after a while. If you make that a goal, I guarantee you, you will do it more often than if you don't make a goal. And you might be surprised how bold you get when it's Friday and you haven't given your testimony and you made that commitment to yourself. It could be a very useful tool. The servant is bold. We can be bold. Secondly, Tell the story in detail. The servant here, he made sure he retold every piece of it. If you go back and compare his retelling to the events themselves as Moses gives them to us, there is nothing missing. Not even the smallest aspect of the detail. And folks, as we give a testimony or as we have opportunity to share with someone else concerning our faith, every detail of our personal salvation matters Because every part testifies to the sovereignty and the majesty of God in our lives. There was no aspect of it that was by chance. There wasn't any piece of it that God didn't have a hand in bringing about. Don't take for granted anything. Who are we to know what part of our story is going to be the part that resonates with our audience and may then be the means by which God impresses the truth upon their heart? Don't presume that you have any details that are irrelevant. Finally, the third piece. Give a testimony that glorifies God. You know, I've had an occasion here and there to hear people give testimonies. I think it's a good practice, something I thought even as I was preparing this lesson, something we might want to pursue on occasion here. It's not a bad practice. It gives people a chance to exercise this, this skill and to become comfortable with it. But I have noticed when I've been in moments where testimonies are being shared, there's really two kinds of testimonies that are typically shared. One that's good, one that's not so good. And the one that's not so good is the one that glorifies the person and is focused on self and leaves you thinking, well, they were really smart to accept the gospel. Even if that wasn't their intent or their heart, in how you tell the story, you want to be careful that God remains at the center of the work 
that his glory is not stolen in any sense. Look at what the servant did. He made sure to emphasize from beginning to end and go back. I encourage you to go back and read it again from all the way through. He emphasizes the Lord's power. The involvement of the Lord to bring about the encounter, the way the Lord answered his prayer. And I think when we give our testimony, we have that same expectation. We have that same challenge. How do I represent that what's happened to me was by God's authority, by God's sovereign direction in my life, by his grace to bring a messenger or a word, by his grace to open my heart, to let me have ears to hear, to be at the center of the process where he is at all times. Don't turn it into a story of us. Turn it into a story of the Father and the Spirit who led us to the Son. So having given this testimony now, the servant awaits the brother's response. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel, notice Bethuel now at the table. Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you good or bad. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. So then we see her mother is still alive as well. So Laban is struck, Laban and Bethuel are struck here by the servant's testimony so they respond with this full acceptance. They basically accepted the marriage proposal. Rebecca will be married to Isaac. Now, there is still a step involved, and you'll see that later in the text. Rebecca, for her part, will have an opportunity to say yay or nay to the whole thing. That was not always the case. This is the case for this culture in Mesopotamia. This was the case. Women had the chance to basically veto the deal. So a woman could not initiate her own marriage proposal. She couldn't find her own suitor. She couldn't arrange her own marriage. But she could yay or nay on the ones that were arranged for her, at least in this culture. I want you to notice at the point where both the father and the son agree to the union, they acknowledge that that agreement is a necessity because they acknowledge the work of God. They're saying this matter is out of our hands based on your testimony We are not in a position to say no. You notice they don't even say we can't say anything good or bad. They basically step out of the decision process and say we don't have a decision to make anymore. God has already done this. The servant's testimony produced the desired effect. They glorify God, giving him full credit for what has happened. They completely remove themselves from the situation. What a wonderful outcome. If you think of all the possible outcomes, even if they had said instead of this, even if they had said, well, you've convinced us, we will acknowledge the marriage. Even that response would have been less glorifying to God than the one they gave. God received the maximum glory for his work and that men were shown to have no part in it. Isn't that the testimony we have in faith? We came to faith not by works, but by grace through faith and even it. Not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So that no man may boast. Not the one who brought us the word. Not the one who receives the word. No one can sit around in a weak moment and say, Boy, you know, I'm really smart. I I accepted the gospel. You're not smart. You're saved by grace. So Laban and Bethuel say, She's Isaac's. Take her. 
And at that moment, the servant responds, moved by what he sees, to yet again give the father the praise. And he produces a bounty here of what the scripture calls precious gifts. But notice who he gives them to. Therefore, both the bride herself, she receives yet more gifts, but then the bride's family is also blessed. Now, that's just simply the bride price. This is the formal payment that was customary in this day. When you took a wife from a family, the family was owed something for her, and you had to pay, the groom's family had to pay the price. It was expected because there was value attached to both sons and daughters. For a son, the value in this culture was in his ability to continue the family name and the family inheritance and for his ability to produce income for the family through his labor. Women, on the other hand, daughters, were valued in the amount that they could command from a prospective groom and how they brought that money into the family as the bride price. And the better the catch, the higher the price. But it works the other way, too, because the higher the price offered the more the groom was showing his love for this woman and his admiration for the family. And so it was a sign of respect if you offered a good price. You know, there was a bit of culture assigned to that. You offer too little and you risk insulting both the bride and her family and the whole deal doesn't get done. On the other hand, if you offer too much, you just might look a little foolish. Overpaying wasn't very smart either. So there was a delicate balance there. I'm not sure how you arrived at the right price. There wasn't eBay. You couldn't see what they were going for. There wasn't a catalog. Oh, wouldn't you love to have been some of the conversations? What do you think she's worth? Uh, I'd give you maybe 50 for her. I don't, I don't know. Do you see pictures here in our own salvation, though? I do. First, you notice the servant produces more gifts for the bride. Scripture says that we have the gifts of the Spirit at the point of salvation, just as she received those bracelets, which picture that, the gifts of the Spirit made available to us at the moment we are betrothed. But Scripture also says that rewards increase in spiritual terms as we enter deeper into our relationship with Christ. And that depth comes as a consequence of spending time with him in his word, spending time with people that know the Lord and counsel and encourage and pray for us, spending time in prayer, spending time in service to others in the body so that we grow through that opportunity to serve. All of these things work together to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. With that comes blessing. And even in this simple moment where there's an affirmation from the family that, yes, you will be wed, there's more gifts. That's the heart of our father, to give good gifts to his children. But he does it on the basis of how we respond to his invitations. Because that's what good fathers do. Good fathers reward good behavior and not poor behavior. And then the bride's family receives gifts. Now, the price that's being paid here is the customary price, as we said, for a bride. But when we were betrothed to our groom, to Christ, that is, someone had to pay the price for our new relationship with the Lord. And the price was paid by Christ himself, which is why Scripture says he receives all glory. He isn't just the recipient of the bride. He's the one who paid the price to obtain the bride in the first place. And the delivery of the payment for our sake came to our heart by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once again, the servant of God delivered the payment, made it effectual, made it apply for our sake. Christ's death on the cross happened 2,000 years ago. And all the work that needed to be done to save everybody who will be saved was done in that moment. There is no additional work that could be done to equal, much less surpass, the work that Christ has already done. But until there is that moment of faith in the heart, that work 
stands apart from us. It is not applied. It is not effectual. And in this moment, as the cementing of the relationship takes place, the price is paid so that there is nothing now standing between the bride and her groom. And that's how God did things for us through the spirit. A price was paid and the price was applied by the servant, delivering it to our hearts through the baptism. Any sin debt that we carried before we knew Christ and any sin we might accomplish after we come to know Christ was paid by his death on the cross and applied to us by faith through the spirit. And in the joining to Christ, we now have no debt. No price will need to be paid again. It's all been paid. Hallelujah. Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then in 2 Timothy 2.11, he says it is a trustworthy statement. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And then lastly, Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Through the power of spirit baptism, the servant coming with the message and the reception in our heart of the faith that God gives, then we are counted as having died with Christ, having been risen with him in the newness of life. What a beautiful picture of how this works. And what made it possible? The confession. It led to this moment. We were bought by Christ's blood. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your body. Isn't that a beautiful summation? The Bible gives us this beautiful story, these intricate patterns, these pictures, so that we will have an even better understanding of his ways and his purposes in our life. That's why this picture is here. I mean, think about what he had to do to create this picture. It's not just the matter of writing it down in the book. These people had to be born and they had to live and they had to experience all these things so that their life could form the picture that we now have the benefit of. And if you trace it all back, they had to have parents that were born and they had to have all the circumstances of their life just fit together perfectly so that on a given day, the servant and Rebecca would stand next to each other at a well. Is God not the master of every detail? Is he not in control of every aspect of his creation? How could he not be and create a picture like this? As we continue in the study next week and we finish the story of Isaac and his wife, I want us to continue reflecting on this greater meaning. And I hope it starts to really impress upon you that if God plans this story out so that we would have the benefit of this picture, what's he doing in your life and in mine? What's he planning right now? What, what events of your life are forming a story that ultimately glorifies him? We were God's appointed bride for our groom. We weren't looking for him. He found us. We received gifts, a measure of his wealth, a representation of his love for us. We were bought for a price that was paid in his body. We have the blessed opportunity to testify to him in our confession to the world. And one day we will meet him face to face. And then the next phase of our life with Christ will begin. And in the conclusion of the story next week, guess what we get to study? Not only in the events of Isaac and Rebecca, but in the second story, we get to see how the bride is made ready to meet her husband and how the meeting actually takes place. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for pictures. Thank you for the awesome, amazing power that you wield in the lives of men so that these pictures could even take place. And thank you for the spirit insight to see the meaning of them now. 
And as we marvel at all that you're capable of doing, and as we walk away from this morning with a better understanding of our relationship in Christ and our opportunity to serve through testimony and all the details of the story, give us a bold heart. Give us the right words. Give us a desire to glorify you and not ourselves so that we may fulfill the purpose you have in bringing us the word this morning. And thank you, Father, for Oak Hill Bible Church and for each and every man and woman in this church who together form the body of Christ and are all, Father, one in spirit. Thank you for the blessing to be a part of this. May we share it with many more. May you give us that opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.